you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what they're up to. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Meredith Castle. So that means this week is a tech episode, but it's a tech episode with a twist. Today, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering, the Palawa people, but also the First Nations people, wherever you are listening to us from. So we are in Tasmania, which is Lutruwita, and I pay my respects to elders past and present and would like to acknowledge that I stand for a future that respects, acknowledges and values Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. So Meredith, can you fill me in a little bit on what we're going to be talking about as part of today's episode? Definitely. This week's episode, we're looking into an area that is very close to my my heart, um, in my part of technology, and we're looking into the topic of technology that's been actually deployed in the exploration of Mars, so space exploration and space Ooh, travel. Ooh, that's very cool and very, very left cool. field and out of my comfort zone. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited that our guest this week is someone I very much admire. Uh, that's Professor Paolo de Souza, the head of the School of Information and Communication Technology at Griffiths University. Um, he was also formerly of uh, UTAS here in Tasmania and formerly of the CSIRO. So it's great to have you on the show, Paolo. Um, but before we get started, we're going to chat about the. Uh, we're going to chat a lot about the topic of space exploration that I know we're both extremely passionate about. But can you just tell us? Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about yourself and how you got into science. Well, thank you. It's great to be here today. Um, look, I I started probably a very young age, uh, very interested in nature and how things work. Um, lived in the Amazon where I grew up. I'm Brazilian um, in. And that experience of being in such a rich uh, ecosystem, uh, looking at how animals, insects uh, interact, the climate plays a key role in that. Uh, it was amazing to realize that in a very early age and very curious. So I, I have to fulfill that curiosity uh, a lot. And of course, it's sky in a place like in the middle of the Amazon. Whenever it's not raining, <laughs> it, it, it's awesome. Um, so it is. It is something that fascinated me a lot, and I, I used to see myself looking too, too much to the sky, I would say, um, and, and fascinated about about the world up there. Definitely. Uh, me too. <laughs> it's always about, been about the sky and the stars um, for me, and the tech that goes along with learning more about it. Um, so... You're, just for the listeners, you're a computer scientist and you've got an interest in microsensing. Um, so first, can you, I guess, explain to the listeners, first of all, what microsensing actually is and then tell us a bit about the work you're doing these days at Griffiths? Yeah, I am a physicist by training. I did a lot of things in computer science and, and when it goes to instrumentation, which physicists love to do, we need computers. So it ended up really being a second thing for me to work with computers and make the best use of them to build instruments. And one area that was for, for me of interest was to build, to build small instruments. It's, it's instruments that are really as, as small as they can, so that would allow us to do things that we were not able to do before. Uh, it might be a big instrument that we miniaturized and put in on a, on a rocket and send that on 
board of a rover to Mars, so it could be a small microchip we put on a on a bee. Um, with, and then we have bees with backpacks flying around with, with microchip. Um, miniaturization, it's, it's all about this with the advancement of electronics uh, and with the computer systems allow us to build very, very tiny things. It could be implants that you might have in your body, um, like brain implants that we build that you can help people to have a better life if they have seizures, or it could be uh, instruments that we put on, on rockets and, and send that to, to space. So you previously, just for the listeners, you previously did some work with the JPL. Um, for everybody else, that's the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California in the, in the US. So can you tell us a little bit about that work that you might have done with them? Of course. Uh, the, the work was a uh, development of as part of a team of a sensor that uh, it was one of the sensors used by NASA uh, to, to understand if Mars was once wet. Until the Mars Exploration Hover mission, the one that we launched in 2003, uh, and we landed with two hovers, Spirit and Opportunity, uh, Mars for us was a dry place uh, with rocks that are made of primary uh, minerals. Those minerals are the ones that are formed from lava, uh, and there was probably less um, exposure to uh, weathering uh, through through water, and and that is what we would like to see uh, if you want to find a place that was habitable. At the end of the day, we were trying to find if Mars was a place that could be uh, favorable for life to be formed and eventually evolved. Uh, but all evidences for previous missions, like uh, marina flybys and um, Viking landers and sojourners show us that Mars was a very dry place and a place that probably never saw water. Uh, back in 1984, uh, an expedition of NASA to Antarctica found meteorites uh, in a place called Allen Hills in Antarctica. And fascinating about that Martian rock is that we found carbonates. Carbonates need water to be formed. It's a mineral that needs water. So a Martian rock a rock that came, that, you know, that Martian came from Mars, formed in a wet environment. That, that's an indirect indication that Mars was once wet. But inside that little rock, they also found, looking at scanning electron microscopes, very powerful microscopes, structures that looks like a fossil of a bacteria. And that was the big discovery that was actually announced in a press conference by the American president at the White House at that time, with Bill Clinton, saying that that indirect evidence was probably a first indication that we are not alone in the universe, and therefore we should go back uh, to Mars. And this is what then this instrument that I helped build did. It's an instrument that analyzed minerals that contain iron. Iron is very, very rich on the surface. We have a lot of iron on Mars. And by looking at the minerals that contain iron with this instrument, it gives us some type of a fingerprint that tells us which mineral you have. Each mineral has a fingerprint. So we analyzed them, and we found an environment that, based on the minerals that indicate that Mars was really very, very wet environment in the past, much warmer than it is today. 
and probably in a beautiful place. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Just stay tuned in just a moment. We'll be talking more with Professor Paolo D'Souza about his amazing work on the Mars mission. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking technology of space and the Mars missions. My name is Meredith, and I'm here with my co-host Neve and our special expert guest, Professor Paolo de Souza of Griffiths University. So we, we were talking a bit about microsensing and, and Paolo's work in tech to begin with before the break, and now we're going to delve into the work you've done in the creation of tech that went into some of the Mars missions. Some people will know there's a rover uh, flying towards Mars at the moment called Perseverance, um, who we'll talk a bit a little bit more about in a second, but um, you worked on some technology, as you mentioned, in the previous rover, rover missions. So in terms of the rovers that have already made their way to Mars, and you've already mentioned Spirit and Opportunity, for example, can you just talk about some of the science that they were and are doing. So why is it important that robotic missions to Mars are happening and will continue to happen? Well, we have to pull back probably 500 years ago when we thought that we were the center of the universe and everything has to turn around us. And we were built at the image of semblance of God. Everything in this homocentrism uh, was so, in, so entrenched, um, linked to our nature. And because we live on Earth, we have also the geocentrism. Everything has to turn around Earth. We were at the center of the universe. And this is why Kepler and Galileo and others got in trouble with the church at the time, because they said, well, actually, we are turning around the sun. And this is not acceptable. We were at the center of the universe. Everything has to turn around us. We are at the center of the creation. Um, but the observations from Galileo and from Kepler were correct. So what we have to do then about this is, um, let's call the a king astro and forget about it. Until approximately 100 years ago, where physicists looking at the light being emitted by other stars and by our sun, they realized that the, um, the light is of the same nature. So what that means is that our sun is another star. It's just close by. That's why it looks bigger. Yes, that's exactly what happened. For us, it was a, uh, a loss of importance. We were not only not just the center of the universe, but our center that was the sun actually is just another star. How many stars we have at the universe? Uh, we have more stars at the universe than grains of sand in all beaches of our planet. Uh, that gives you an idea of, um, of how much importance we lost with that. But we say, well, uh, no problem. Uh, we live in the only solar system that is known. It's the only star with planets turning around it. Uh, and that was true up to uh, li literally in our history yesterday, during the 80s, where other planets were discovered, or uh, what we call exoplanets beyond our solar system, with the help of our, our radio telescope that is in Tasmania. Um, Today, with Kepler, we have hundreds of other solar systems now and planets that look very much like Earth, with plenty of water today on the surface. Um, what that means is probably that we, we say, well, we are in the only planet with life and with intelligent life. Uh, though I doubt that we have intelligent life on Earth, but uh, <laughs> that's 
That's the question we are trying to answer at the end of the day. Is Mars a place that could have had life? And if it doesn't have life today, it could underground in, in maybe there is some underground rivers or, or lakes in the poles uh, of Mars. Um, maybe there was a habitable place in the past and there was a lot of life there. Uh, how life was formed and what happened to Mars that is so dry today? What happened to Earth as well? There is no future for human beings. Um, unless we find another place for us to move on. Not that we will destroy Earth, which is probably something that if we don't take care and change the way we develop our economic activity, it's going to happen. We don't have a good track record on, on using natural resources on Earth in preserving the environment. But the sun is going to expand, it's going to engulf Earth. But before that, it's likely that our core is going to cool down and we're going to lose the magnetic field, and then we will not be protected against solar storms, and life will simply disappear on the surface of, of Earth. If we are here to exist as a species, as human beings on the sapiens, we need to find other places to live. Um, but don't worry, it's not something that we have to do today or until the end of the year. Uh, we still have. Uh, uh, probably a couple of billions of years to do it, but we, that journey starts one day. Do you think we should prioritize looking at planets that are more similar or an array of planets that seem to be similar but slightly varied in age compared to Earth? We'll have planets that are younger in, in the age, older. We'll have the full spectrum across the entire, entire universe and not just our galaxy. Challenge for us is how do we get there? We don't have yet technology to get humans to Mars. So we are still pretty much within the same grain of sand. We are not able to jump to the next grain of sand yet. In terms of technology, we have done absolutely nothing compared to what we have to do to really explore the universe. We are in the caves yet. It looks fascinating to, to land on the surface of Mars with instruments and take those beautiful photos there, analyze the rocks, do something like nuclear resonance on rocks on Mars to understand the evolution of the solar system. But that's nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what we have to do to get to the nearest star uh, and to the nearest star that has a another planet or to get to the star that has a planet that is a bit old that has approximately the same gravity, that has the same atmosphere, etc. But it's out there. It does exist. Uh, statistically, I would say it's impossible to not get something so close to Earth somewhere else, and probably hundreds and hundreds of those planets. But we don't have yet means to cross that, that immense distance between us and that. So it's still a lot to be done. Uh, this is a fascinating episode so far. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us, and in just a moment, we'll be talking more to Professor Paolo D'Souza.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I'm Meredith Castles and I'm joined by my co-host Neve Chapman and we're learning about the Mars rover missions and um, amazing science being done to explore both our closest planetary neighbour and space in general. Um, so Paolo, I just want to quickly touch on the Perseverance mission um, just again there's something a bit special about this particular mission that hasn't been done before. So for everybody else, the Perseverance mission is on its way there now, winging across. It's slated to touch down on Mars on the 18th of February in 2021. Um, so Perseverance is the newest rover and it's going to explore Mars, but it has on board a very interesting little travel companion called Ingenuity. So Paolo, can you just give our listeners a bit of an idea of uh, what Ingenuity or who Ingenuity actually is? Yeah, it's a small helicopter. Uh, it it will be attached to the belly of the rover, and as the rover land and start walking, it will drop that just like an egg, move on, and then that helicopter is going to fly around and help the rover to find places to go nearby. Uh, what happens? We we have the support with spirit and opportunity, and also with curiosity of uh, support of satellites, orbiters with powerful cameras looking down and giving us in a large scale, let's say uh, it can be kilometers or 250 meters, interesting places to go, but not much detail about the surface because they are 400 kilometers from the surface taking photos. It's very far away. This small helicopter is going to look at much shorter distances with much higher resolution and help the hover to find better places to go. It's like a small messenger that goes around, look, prospect, come back, say, hey, I think you should go to that place northwest. There is an outcrop there that is exactly what we are looking for. So it helps the rover to decide where to go. So it's robot, robot collaborating. And in between those, uh, you would have human beings back here. And then in that case, a JPL. And looking at the data from the helicopter and then guiding the hover to that place. Not in real time. It's impossible to drive a machine in real time on the surface of Mars. They are absolutely autonomous for that regard. I will explain to you. Mars is so far away from here that takes us 20 minutes to get an information traveling at speed of light to get to Mars. And then 20 minutes to get feedback. So if I take the phone and call the hover and say, hello, 20 minutes later, the hover will hear that hello. And then it would say, hi, it will take me 40 minutes to hear that. So I say hello and wait for 40 minutes to say hi. So if I drive the hover, let's say I turn the wheels of the hover right, it will take 40 minutes for me to receive that information if I have an open communication channel with the hover, which doesn't happen all the time. So the best thing for me to do is to give some level of autonomy to the hover. And the only thing I can say is go to that place and the hover then drives autonomously using its camera, analyzing the, the soil using artificial intelligence software and then driving to get there. Uh, what is going to happen, scientists are going to have a much better view around from the top with this small drone flying around, getting images, standing back. And then we say, yeah, it looks like that place 50 meters away is the perfect spot for us to go. And then we say, over to go there. 
There's actually just one question I'd like to interject here, <laughs> which is about the human considerations in travelling to and I don't like using the word colonising, but um, but settling, we'll say, or setting up a habitat on Mars, we'll call it. So I think most people who would be listening to this episode have probably seen the movie The Martian. One of the areas I'm most passionate about in ICT is ethically designing technology for human safety in, in spaceflight and on um, potentially future uh, Mars missions or planetary missions and to use in planetary exploration. So what do you think we need to consider when we're actually sending humans into space towards Mars, but also what we need to consider if we're actually going to be sending people to Mars? Yep, yep. So, yeah, there are a number of things to consider. First one, uh, going to the moon, it's just like crossing an Olympic pool swimming. Uh, going to Mars is like crossing the entire uh, Pacific Ocean. It's a completely different level of complexity, endurance, and it, it's just another level. We don't yet have full knowledge and technology to make it happen. Uh, our body was not built to be in for that long, seven months to eight months, maybe a year to get to Mars. Once you get on Mars, Mars will be so far away from Earth that you won't be able to fly immediately back to Earth. You need to stay and survive for approximately a year on the surface of Mars until you are Mars and Earth are close back again, and then you can fly back, traveling again another year. It will take at least three years to get there and come back. The other one is is the psychological aspect of being in a true um, locale, let's say. Uh, You you are in a small spacecraft with a couple of friends, uh, like-minded, but it's so challenging. You see what we have been through with COVID, we have to stay at home and how much we we feel the, the, the fact that we cannot go out and go for a walk and, and we need that, uh, but we were not able to do it. Uh, so we don't know yet to, to that extent how psychologically impactful we'll be working from, uh, from a small spacecraft for that long period of time. So the isolation or the work with a couple of other colleagues can be very challenging. Um, there are ethical aspects involved in that. Uh, can we expose astronauts or the human beings to that level of stress? Um, we still we don't we don't have all the answers for that. I would go in a heartbeat, but I don't think my health insurance would cover that or my life insurance. So I think it's a no go for me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really a no-go for a lot of people. So Meredith and I are just kind of trying to toss up, like, where do we go from here? Not just planetary-wise. Just in the episode, I feel like you've, for me, this has raised more questions than it's answered, which is a fantastic way for an episode to go, I would just like to say. <laughs> um, we're making these great advances, and you said earlier, you know, we're, we're, we've a couple of billion years before we uh, hit the detonator on our planet, but... We need to make such huge technological leaps before we could get to easy planetary exploration. And the thing that is really in my brain is, well, does a planet just have a life course like a human has a life course? And why should we go beyond our solar system or our planet? Yeah, I think we we start asking questions, questioning why we should explore space when we lost the ability to dream. If we had a chance to go and ask a child, five years old child, 
looking at the sky and so many stars in the outback and ask that child, would you like to go to those places? You would see the excitement in the eyes and that soul full of dreams and exploration is in our DNA. Uh, so it's something that is in it, it's, it's, it, it will happen. It's part of us, of what we are. We are explorers. Uh, we were designed um, in a way that this is what we look for. Um, there's no way that that is not going to happen. Now, if we bring to a very practical world today, stop dreaming and let's think about the problems we have today, right here, right now. Um, still, the development of technology enables us to do things. The way that I learned to build an instrument to go to Mars has helped me to put backpacks on these and help to secure food for the next generations to come in a very short term. Um, we have to continue dreaming and looking at the sky, but with the feet on the floor right here on Earth and thinking about how can we make this planet a better place. Um, there is no way that we will succeed as a species dreaming just about this, the, 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 the woods we could explore out there if we don't take care of the woods we have right now here. We talk about terraforming and fixing the uh, atmosphere of other planets. Uh, there are a lot of movies in Hollywood about it, but we are ma messing a little bit with a few ppm's, part per million of CO2, and we have all these consequences of climate change that we are not able to fix right now, right here. Uh, interesting challenges. So we, we need to bring that back down to Earth. Uh, I like the way that our Australian Space Agency is built and it's working and it's financing research and say, you do that, but you need to create jobs right now. You need to demonstrate that you are building the capability that will serve other industries. We are not just exploring by the sake of exploration, but we want to make this place a better place. We want to make our country a better country. I like that approach, and it's quite unique to space agencies. Though we have, of course, at NASA an office that looks after transfer technology to make a difference in our lives right now, uh, but not by design. And the way it was created, like the Australian Space Agency, is unique. So it's it's really a point to celebrate that we have that much care about the reality that we have right now and the the crude reality of creating jobs and, and giving everyone an opportunity to be part of this exciting industry, but trying to solve problems that we have at the same time dreaming about exploring other places. That's fantastic. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science, and we have been discussing the Mars technology, and I hope that you are feeling inspired. I'd like to thank my co-host, Meredith Castles, for all her prep work for this episode, and of course, our expert guest, Professor Paolo D'Souza from Griffith University. Thank you, and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. 
Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.